since I've been up here, and I'm, I am thankful for the opportunity to look at God's Word with you this morning. And so, for those of you who might be visiting or, or are new to our church, we do what's called expositional preaching, meaning that we preach the Bible verse by verse, and we see what God has to teach us from it. And this morning, we find ourselves back really in the middle of a very famous conversation. It's of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, as we've just read. And so, before we dive into our passage, it's, in more, it's important to remind ourselves of why the Apostle John is writing this gospel account. So, do you remember? Right? John chapter 20, verse 31, John tells us exactly why he wrote his gospel account. It says, But these things have been written so that, there's a purpose statement, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so, knowing that, it doesn't matter at what part of the Gospel of John that we're in, we need to be asking ourselves what evidences are being presented about Jesus so that we may believe. And where is John revealing the majesty and the glory and the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ? And so that should be our springboard into our passage today. And this morning, we're going to be seeing a lot about what Jesus is revealing about himself. Right? Here's the main idea. I think it's written in your notes. But in John chapter 4, verse 16 through 30, Jesus reveals his true identity in order that we may become true worshipers. So again, in John chapter 4, verse 16 through 30, Jesus reveals truths about himself in order that you would believe and be born again. And so we're going to see that being broken down into four points, and they're in your notes this morning. Number one, Jesus reveals his divinity. Number two, Jesus reveals the requirements for worship. Number three, Jesus reveals his identity and finally, we'll see at point four, Jesus reveals his life-changing power. And so we're going to be moving through some portions of that outline rather quickly, and some we're going to dive really deep into. So uh, we're going to spend actually a lot of time exploring point number two, so you know where we're going. And again, keep in mind our main idea, John chapter 4, 16 through 30, Jesus reveals his identity in order that we may become true Worshippers, And so let's now look to our text to see what God is revealing. Look to verse 16 and we'll explore point one. Jesus reveals his divinity. Read chapter 4 verse 16. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. So here in John chapter 4, we're dropping into this, really, the middle of the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And like Pastor Chris brought up last week, there's a difference between Nicodemus in chapter 3, who we met, and now the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. One is a religious leader. One was a woman with questionable character. One sought out Jesus at night. And the other sought, was sought out by Jesus himself. One had the temple and had Jerusalem, and the other had never even set foot in the temple. One had prestige, and the other had shame. And it's worth quickly reviewing 
who the Samaritans were so that we understand what makes this interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman so unique. And remember in the Old Testament, you had the nation of Israel and there were, they consisted of 12 tribes and they ended up having this civil war and the, the kingdom became divided. Israel split between Judah in the south and Israel to the north. And since the northern tribes, they didn't have Jerusalem any longer, they made their own spiritual headquarters up in Samaria. Thus the name, Samaritans. And so they ruled there for hundreds of years up until the Assyrians kicked them out. And the Assyrians, they, they exiled almost everyone from there, except that they left the poor. They left the lame they left the disabled, they left the weak, they left the unemployed, they left the beggars, they left the lowest part of the social class. All right? They didn't want to bring any of those types of people to Assyria, so they left them in Samaria. And then for hundreds of years uh, uh, down the line, they developed, the Samaritans did, they developed their own culture, their own nation, their own ethnicity, Yes, of course, they, d they descended from Israel, but there was almost 500 years between the Assyrian exile and John chapter 4. And just think about how much drifts apart in 500 years. Right? The U.S. is only separated from England by a couple hundred years. And Jesus now, in verse 16, Jesus tells her to call her husband to him and come and partake of this water as well. So why did Jesus do this? Why did he bring her husband into the story? I mean, Jesus had never met her before. Did Jesus just assume? Was Jesus testing her? I believe that this is an example of Jesus' divine nature being expressed. Jesus had been giving her the good news, right? There's living water, and those who drink will never thirst again. But, before conversion can happen, before she can take a drop of that living water, Jesus knows that she needed to be made of wear and be convicted over her sin. And so he asks her, go, call your husband, already knowing what the answer is going to be. And this is going to change penalty or what the Old Testament law of adultery was. And if you remember, what is the, uh, uh, the consequence for adultery? It's, it's death. Not only would Jews avoid her, but Samaritans likely would have shunned her as well. And so it makes, knowing this, makes this interaction so sweet when we see the gentleness and complete care of Jesus in evangelism. And really, we can take a, a lesson from Jesus and apply it to our own lives here. When we're talking with someone about the gospel, yes, it's excellent to present, the, uh, to present someone with all the glories of the gospel, all of the blessings, all of the gifts of God, the living water, the eternal life. But it's not enough just to stop there. Not enough to just present the positive truths of soul-satisfying blessing from God. If all you do is share the good news and then ask for a response, you'll likely just get a false convert, right? Because who doesn't want living water? But what makes the good news the good news? It's that there's bad news, right? The penalty of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. 
And after Jesus shows that he knows everything about her in verse 18, even her life of sin, there's this shift in the conversation. There's no more talk of blessing. There's no more talk of mercies. No more talk of satisfaction. She will not be able to drink of the living water until there is conviction and repentance over her sinful condition. And the woman said she didn't have a husband, but Jesus knew more than that. Jesus knew that she had a pattern of divorce and remarriage in her life. And in this latest relationship, this woman skipped the marriage altogether and was just living with the man. She's living in an immoral relationship. And so if Jesus didn't know all things, then how did he know her story? They had never met before. If you turn to John chapter 2, verse 25, John said that nobody needed to tell Jesus what was in the heart of men because he knew what was in the heart. And really, there's a mystery here. There's a mystery when you think about Jesus' divine and human natures dwelling in one person. And we see, uh, uh, we see occasions in the gospel where Christ's divinity is highlighted and other places where we see the humanity of Christ highlighted. And so we have to return to our springboard question here, right? Why is John including this? What is he revealing about the Son and what exactly am I called to believe? Well, we see Christ revealing his divinity here. We see how perfectly he's interacting with this woman, a sinner. He has grace. He has patience. He has wisdom. His knowledge extends to the heart of men, but it reaches into their past as well. He knows everything there is to know, and he knows her history and the history of her iniquity. And her sinful life has now been exposed. She can't hide it. There's nowhere to go. And so her response is an amazing and wonderful response that leads us in to point number two. Number two this morning, Jesus reveals the requirements for worship. Jesus reveals the requirements for worship. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. In her mind, Jesus is no longer a delusional stranger offering living water. He's a prophet. Someone speaking on behalf of God. And she's starting to understand that there's something more to Jesus than just a random Jewish guy asking her for water in the noonday sun. He must be connected to God to know all of this. And so in a turn of events, she starts starts to ask spiritual questions. And what would be on the mind of a Samaritan in the first century? Or a Jew for that matter? See, if I have all this sin in my life and I need to worship God and I need to make it right, then are the Samaritans doing it right or are the Jews doing it right? Who gets worship correct? That's the question. Look at verse 19 and 20. The woman said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. See, she's been convicted over her sin and knows she needs to be made right with God. And so her question now shifts to the topic of worship. You see, who, what, why, and how you worship 
is probably the most important thing about you. You can learn more about somebody by their life of worship than you can by any other means. See, worship is what separates you from a non-Christian. Worship is what separates angels and demons. Listen, scripture is clear that it is impossible for a non-Christian to rightly worship. And you might say, wait a second, you know, I, I know some good people who aren't Christians. I know, I have friends who volunteer their time on the weekends to feed the poor. But if the height of virtue or the height of worship was loving your neighbor or the height of worship was giving to the poor, then yes, an atheist might be as kind as Christians. But that is not the height of worship. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Right? There's nothing more virtuous than worshiping God. Non-believers can and do worship, but they don't worship rightly. They don't worship purely. Remember, the angels are divided into the distinction between who and how they worship. And the same thing is true for us. And we must know what separates true worship from false worship. It's not merely a knowledge of God, but a love for God. See, demons, they know everything about God. Demons know the truth about Christ. Demons know that Christ was the Savior God who took on human flesh, who was crucified on the cross and resurrected the third day. Demons understand that what separates true believers from non-believers is not knowledge about God, but their love for him. And when you have a love for Christ, then it will work its way out in your life and in your behavior. Look, it is possible to know the right God and yet worship him in the wrong way, right? Just ask Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Cain worshipped the right God, didn't he? But he worshipped in the wrong way. And remember the Lord's rebuke of Cain? He says, I've told you what's required of you and you would do well to do it and your countenance will be lifted up. But sin is crouching at your door and you must master it. So you must worship God in the right way for it to be virtuous worship. And we see it all throughout the Old Testament even, that Israel worshiped God in the right way prescriptively, but with the wrong motives. And God rejects their worship. So true worship is seen as worshiping the right God in the right way with the right motives. This is acceptable worship, and this is what is reserved for believers. Jesus reveals the requirements for true worship in our passage this morning. And this Samaritan woman asks a great question. And she's seen her sin. And she, knows, she wants to know, how do I make things right? Where then shall I go? What should I do? Where is the right place to worship? Is it in Mount Gerizim in Samaria? Or is it in Jerusalem at the temple with you? Her question shows her heart. How do I find peace? Where do I find forgiveness? Where do I go? What church do I go to? What place should I go to? What ritual should I partake in? What ceremony do I have to do? And it's natural. It's natural to see religion as merely an external checklist of do's. 
And so I pose the question to you, how would you answer this question? Where do I go to worship? Maybe you're at work and somebody, uh, you know, it starts at the job and new to the area and comes up to you and, you know, I just moved here and I hear that you're a Christian. Where should I worship? And you tell them 28050 Sand Canyon Road, Church of the Canyons, of course. No. But it's easy to focus on the address of the physical location of worship, isn't it? But look how Jesus answers it. Look at John chapter 4, 21 through 24. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Church, this is the most definitive text in the Gospels on the matter of worship. And Jesus starts his response by saying, believe me. Believe me. Remember John's, pur- remember John's purpose for writing? Why did he write? So that you would believe. See, Jesus and John had the same goal here. He's about to tell you how to become a true worshiper. So pay attention. Believe me, Jesus says. The location is not what is paramount. Jesus is denouncing the externalities of worship. Very simply, Jesus is saying it this way. Worship is not confined to a location, but it's rooted in an internal and personal relationship with God. See, God seek, is seeking worshipers that come to him on his terms, not on your own terms. Jesus wants you to come to the Father, not because of what you've invented, but because of the spirit and truth. And in the scheme of world history, it would only be a few more decades from this interaction that the temple would be torn down. The year 70 AD marks the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. See, true worship is not about a place. It's not about a rite. It's not about a ritual. It's not about a ceremony of any kind. It's not about being a Jew or being a Samaritan. True worship is always about loving God, honoring God, obeying God, serving God from the heart. This is what God has always wanted. And Jesus says in verse 22 that the Samaritans got what they knew of worship from the Jews and that salvation comes from them. And that's quite easy to understand, and don't let it trip you up, because God chose to reveal himself through the Israelites. Right? Paul will later on say that the Jews, if, if the, uh, the Jews had the oracles of God, and God chose the, the Messiah to come from the Jews. And if anyone did have an advantage, it would have been the Jews, only because they had been exposed to God's words. Everyone else had been living in ignorance. But still, whether through apostasy or ignorance, Jew or Samaritan, you still had people worshiping in the wrong way. Remember, we are here to see Christ this morning. 
And so ask yourself again, what is John showing us about Christ? Specifically, we're looking at point number two in your notes. Jesus revealing the requirements of worship. So look at verse 23. An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be worshipers. So what does that mean? In the couple of decades, the, the temple is going to be destroyed. So the hour is coming where no one is going to have a place to worship. See, everything is about to change. With Christ's death and resurrection, the new covenant is about to be established. One commentator puts it this way. He says, do you not understand what happened at the death of Christ when the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies was torn and ripped, shredded from top to bottom? Do you understand that that was the symbol of the end of the entire Old Testament system of external ceremonial and symbolic worship? Do you understand that at the moment it was over, and our Lord is affirming this in John 4, and he's saying this, there are going to be no more temples. There's no more places of worship where God is to be sought and found. There is no more priesthood. There are no more altars. There are no more sacraments. There are no more vestments. There's no incense or candles any longer, and all of that goes with it. Why? Because Christ fulfills them all. Those things are all but shadows of the true sacrifice, the true mountain, the greater, greater high priest, the king of kings, the better Adam, the better Moses, the son of God. All of that passes away. God has always wanted the heart of worship. And that's why the prophet in Amos chapter 5 verse 23 says, Stop your songs. Your hearts aren't right. I hate your feasts, God says. I hate your Sabbaths. I hate what you're doing. Malachi echoes the same thing. says, all you bring me are lame animals. Isaiah the prophet, chapter 1, says the same thing. Your whole head is sick from top to bottom. See, it's always been about the heart. But all those symbols that once pointed them in the direction of worship are now gone church. Don't be tricked into thinking that Jerusalem or the Jordan River or even this building here at COC is intrinsically holy ground. Right? Why? Look at verse 24. God is spirit. I think you could have a whole sermon on those three words. You could probably have a whole six-week series on that, those three words. But God is spirit means that he doesn't dwell anywhere. And sometimes when we uh, expositionally preach through the, a passage verse by verse, we can oftentimes lose the forest for the trees, meaning that we get caught up in the details and we lose the big picture. And it's the preacher's job sometimes to help us see the big picture. And so think of the next few minutes as a, a telephoto lens where we can zoom in and zoom out. And right now I want to pull back, zoom out to speak broadly about how this statement from Jesus is so beautiful. God is spirit. And this might take a little bit of brain power to follow, but 
I encourage you, work hard, follow along. We're about to see truths about Almighty God. I want to draw your attention to the fact that that statement, God is spirit, is a Trinitarian statement. And we just sung about it, that last song. Think about who's speaking here. Jesus, right? The Son. And God the Father has sent God the Son to earth, put on human flesh, is dwelling among us, and he's proclaiming that God is spirit. So you have the Father, the Son, and Spirit relationship here. The Father sends the Son. The Son proclaims that God is Spirit. This is a Trinitarian conversation, but it's even more profound than that. Because what Jesus is saying here is that God, by nature, is Spirit. See, God the Father, God by nature is Father, which means by nature, He's a life giver. God, by nature, is son, which means that by nature, he glorifies himself. God, by nature, is spirit. And so it's fitting for God to be a life giver. It's fitting for God to be self-glorifying. It's fitting for God to be spirit. It's all part of God's nature. This is the Trinity. God is not, by nature, flesh. We, as humans, obviously, we are flesh. And God, by nature, is not. That just means that God is not physically located anywhere. And part of you, being a person, is that you're physically located in one place, no matter how much you wish you could split yourself. Although some of you moms seem to have it figured out, being at two places at once. But God isn't limited. God doesn't have a body. God is spirit. He's omnipresent. There's no road map to God. It's not like you go past the fifth star, hang a left, go past two black holes, and there God is. It's not how it works. He exists independent uh, from his creation. But Jesus takes on an additional nature that doesn't violate his divine nature. It's an addition of humanity, not a subtraction of his divinity. So the God-man here, Jesus, both spirit and flesh. And this is why this is such an incredible statement. The God-man, Jesus, declares that God himself is spirit. And so think about the implications of this. This now affects the way we worship. Because if God was not spirit, but flesh, then it would matter how you worshiped in physical ways. It would become so important which mountain you went to, whether it was Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. It would become important for you to go to this building or that building or what clothes you wear to worship or what ritual you partake in. Those things become worship if God is not spirit. Again, I think you could spend a whole sermon series preaching on what exactly this means. And Jesus here, we're going to zoom back in here. Jesus uses this to connect his answer to worship. Meaning, you don't worship in this temple or that mountain. It's not the point. Because Pentecost is coming. In the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell his believers, Pentecost is here. 
And that time is almost here in John chapter 4. Just a matter of years. And Jesus says there's going to be a time where it won't matter because you'll worship God rightly. His spirit will dwell inside of you. So you want to worship God rightly? Then you worship God in keeping with his nature, which is spirit. And so he goes on to reveal the requirements for worship. See, those who worship him must worship. And this is essential. If you want to worship God, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. I even said it wrong there. You must worship him in spirit and truth. He says it two times, verse 23 and 24. Spirit and truth. These are not two different things. And maybe you've heard it said that these are two different sides of the pendulum swing, right? They're they're two opposites. Maybe you worship God in the heart and you worship God in the head. Facts versus emotions, that type of thing. No. When he says you worship God in spirit and truth, even the way it's structured in the grammar, in the Greek, it's a singular statement that he's making. He's saying, it's because God is spirit, therefore worship him in spirit and truth. See, one preposition governs both of those nouns. It's not in spirit and in truth. That's not how it is. It's in spirit and truth. It's a subtle difference, and I'm glad I caught what I said, because it's, it's subtle, but it's important. In English, you wouldn't split the prepositions like that. Most likely, unless you did it on purpose. You, you wanted to say it that way. Right, if I said, I have mice in my house and in my shed... That would imply I have a house and a shed, both with mice. But if I said, I have mice in my shed house, you'd think, does that guy live in his shed? That's exactly the way Jesus says it here. You worship God in spirit and truth. One thing. Spirit and truth are brought together. They're indivisible. And what is Jesus saying to the Samaritan woman here? It was like a light bulb went off in my head this week, studying this. And I hope you understand how awesome this is. Because John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, is an overflow of what he's been teaching to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, 5 through 8. It's the same lesson. Just the chapter before this, Jesus tells Nicodemus that you cannot see the kingdom of God unless the Holy Spirit causes you to be born again. You cannot worship unless the Holy Spirit causes you to go from death to life. See, you're spiritually dead. Even Nicodemus, the Pharisee, is flesh and spirit, and his spirit was dead. Right? Jesus tells him flesh only produces flesh in John chapter 3, verse 5. And Jesus tells him, you need the Holy Spirit to be alive, Nicodemus. You can't even see God's kingdom unless the Holy Spirit saves you. And we saw Nicodemus' jaw hit the floor. So he said, how is that possible? And Jesus asks Nicodemus, how then do you claim to be a teacher of Israel if you don't even know that you need the Holy Spirit to make you alive? And he leaves that meeting with Nicodemus and Jesus gives the Samaritan woman the same exact lesson as the Jewish Pharisee. 
To the exalted Pharisee, he says, you need the Holy Spirit to see God. And then to the shamed and humble Samaritan woman, he says, you need the Holy Spirit to see God. He has to make you alive. He has to save you. It's the Holy Spirit through faith which makes you alive. You need to be regenerated. That's how you become a true worshiper. Be saved. And that's how Paul says it in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He says, he saves you not on the basis of deeds done in flesh, but based on the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The word and spirit combine to open your eyes to the truth. And this is exactly what Ezekiel prophesied in the new covenant back in Ezekiel chapter 36. He said, a time's coming where the Holy Spirit will take you from death to life and the word of God will cleanse you. And so the way salvation happens is that you're confronted with the truth about God from his word and the Holy Spirit causes your eyes to be open and you then become alive. And when you come alive, you then worship. A Christian is born again and you worship. You come into this new spiritual world as a worshiper. And it's done through the word of God and the indwelling of the spirit. That's why it's spirit and truth. It's inseparable. In fact, later... Through the rest of John's gospel, Jesus, is, he's going to call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. He does it uh, in chapter 14, 15, and 16. He's going to say, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to send you the Spirit of truth. Two times, the apostle John, in 1 John, he calls uh, the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. And Jesus is saying, everything is about to change because up until this point, the Holy Spirit dwelt in the temple. Uniquely. He dwelt in the temple differently than he dwelt anywhere else. And so, in that day, you would worship in the temple differently than you would anywhere else. See, remember, the temple is where the Holy of Holies was. The temple is where the high priest would enter annually to bring sacrifices. And the Spirit dwelt in the temple uniquely, but not exclusively, right? You could, in the Old Testament, worship anywhere, right? Just ask Jonah. He was in the belly of a whale, fish, worshiping God. And the same thing is new, uh, the same thing is true in the New Testament. Do you have to be at church to worship? I should see some heads shaking. No. You don't have to be at church to worship. You can be and worship at God anywhere because God is spirit and the spirit is everywhere. And you can and, and you should worship even in traffic on the 405. It's hard, but it's true. See, but do you need the church for worship? In some sense, absolutely. Absolutely you need the church. But you don't worship God exclusively in the church. Someone might say, I'm a Christian. I just don't go to church. But I can still worship God. Well, yes and no. 
Yes, you can still worship God, but no, you cannot worship God fully. There's 59 one another's in the New Testament, right? You know the one another's, love one another, honor one another, serve one another, be kind to one another, on and on and on. So you cannot one another apart from the church. So yes, you do need to go to church, but not exclusively. And it's all wrapped up in Jesus's point here. True worship is not going to be on this mountain or that mountain after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes to believers. It's going to be all over the world. And you can worship God differently together than you can by yourself because something unique is happening when the church is gathered together. It's exclusive to believers but it's not exclusive in the world. And this is a really a major contrast from the old covenant. And this is why Jesus can point forward and say that the spirit of truth will come to those who have the spirit of truth and they'll be pleasing to God now. These are true worshipers. I mean, we've been sitting here and you've been listening to me talk for what, 40 minutes? You might be wondering, when's the worship gonna happen? The church, our worship is built on our understanding of the revelation of Christ from Scripture. One commentator says, Our worship only goes as high as it does go down. Because the deeper you go into the truth about God, the higher you go in worship. Superficial knowledge of God leads to superficial worship. Worship, by the way, is not just music either. Worship is loving God. Worship is honoring God. Worship is obeying God. Worship is knowing God for who he is and adoring him and obeying him and proclaiming him as the way of life. Music is just one way we express that adoration. So to wrap up this point, Jesus tells the woman that the worship doesn't require a place. It doesn't require a priest. It doesn't require ritual or ceremony or offering. God wants you to worship according to his revealed truth from the heart. Bow to the true God. He wants your heart. Another way to say it is confess Jesus as Lord. Because he is the greater temple. He is the greater high priest. He is the Passover lamb. He is the greater offering. So remember our main idea for this passage, Jesus revealing truth about himself in order that you might believe and be born again. And so we've seen Jesus' deity expressed in his knowledge of everything. And we, he revealed what the requirements for worship are. And now our third point, Jesus is going to reveal his identity to the woman. This will be quick, but it's cha- it changes her life. The Samaritan woman had an understanding that Jesus was talking about the coming Messiah. Look at verse 25. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So do you remember where all of this started? Right? Do we worship on that hill or that hill? And so follow the flow of the conversation here. Jesus says, no, no hill, 
because God is spirit and we must worship him in spirit and truth. And then the woman says, yeah, yeah, I know. I know that the Messiah is coming and he'll explain all of this to me because she understood what that, that he meant in the future. The Messiah, the savior, he's going to come and he's going to do away with both these hills and explain all of this. She got that. And she essentially said, yeah, if only that savior would be here now. And Jesus now drops the biggest truth bomb here. Verse 26. Look at it. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am. I'm him. I'm the guy. I'm the Messiah, Jesus says. He's here. And I left off he, because in your Bible, it's probably italicized, meaning that word's not there. It's only there to help you understand the flow of the, the verse. But he says, verse 26, I am. Where have we heard that before? Yahweh, revealing himself to Moses in the burning bush. I am who I am. This is the pinnacle of the conversation. This is incarnate Christ revealed. She's ready for the truth and he's there to give it to her. I who speak to you, I am. 23 times in the gospel of John, we read Jesus saying, I am. Seven times he says, I am, and then follows it with something, right? I am the bread of life. I am the branch. I am the way, the truth, the life. All references to his eternal Godhead. And so he reveals himself to her. He is the Messiah. And so what does this mean for us today in this room? Right? John is writing that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, by believing you'll have life eternal. And so you want to know who Jesus is? Here he is. He's the one offering living water. He is the one who has life. And this Samaritan woman... An unlikely convert is changed by these words. She believed. How do we know? Let's look at verse 27 through 30 and we'll see point four. Jesus reveals his life-changing power. Verse 27. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with the woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? We're told here that the disciples came up on them and they were amazed. They marveled at the fact that Jesus was talking with a Samaritan, let alone a woman. This feeling of shock is usually what happens when we are shown how Christ acts towards sinners. And it's likely to our shame. Right? When Jesus dined with tax collectors, those who were sick or those who were outcasts, the Pharisees, they couldn't believe it. When Saul came back, changed from Damascus, the Christians in Jerusalem were astonished. When Peter was delivered out of prison by the angel and brought to the house where the disciples were praying for his deliverance, they were surprised. And so why are we taken aback when we see a conversion in the world? Why are we amazed at the change of heart, change of life, change of tastes? change of the old habits of a converted soul. Shouldn't we be amazed at the power of Christ, his mercy, his patience, his compassion? Oh, 
that we would have more faith when we evangelize. Knowing that we are not responsible for the regeneration that happens, but it's Christ is the one who calls and saves the believer, the sinner. We also see here how Christ's life-changing power influences the believer. After the woman is told about Jesus' true identity, she leaves her water pot. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and wanted to talk and say to the men. See, she leaves and is going to go tell others what she learned. She went to get water from the well, but left Jesus knowing of a new and living well. Old things have passed away. New things have come. And a converted soul no longer cares for the desires of the past life. See, a new captain is at the wheel. She went to tell the same people who likely shamed her. Just like Peter leaving his fishing nets behind, the woman now has a new mission. Verse 29 tells us that she's asking others to consider that this is the Christ. Look at verse 29. Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? She didn't use her rhetoric or eloquence. She only said, come. Come and see. Come, see if this is the Messiah. And we can learn from the Samaritan woman today. We ought to do in similar fashion what she did. Right? Every one of us who has received the grace of God and tasted that Christ is gracious ought to find the words to testify of Christ to others. Why in the world would we stand silent if we really believe that souls are perishing around us and that Christ alone can save? Where is our love for others if we stand quiet? The Samaritan woman became a missionary in her own town. Do we feel the supreme importance of spiritual things? Do we ever talk to others about God, about Christ, about eternity, about heaven, about hell? If not, then what is the value of your faith? Where is the reality of our Christianity if we stay quiet? Let us take stock and evaluate where we stand before it's too late. And we see the result of the woman's bold witness of Christ. Drop down to verse 39. Look at From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. Drop down to 41. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying no longer uh, to the woman, it's no longer because of what you have said we believe, for we have heard ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. And so it's possible that there are people here today or watching online that have never believed. And if that's true, that means that you have never worshipped. Yes, you've been passionate about things, but you've never worshipped the right God in the right way with the right motives. 
you need the Holy Spirit to regenerate you. And I pray that this morning would be the day that you cry out to God. That you would ask the Holy Spirit to change your life. That you place your faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins. And that you ask God to make you a worshiper. Salvation is not just saving you from the judgment of God. It's sending you out as a worshiper of Christ. The Holy Spirit will do this to you if you place your faith in him. So this morning we saw the passage that Jesus reveals truths about himself that we would become true worshipers. And we saw that he revealed his divinity. He revealed how to truly worship. He revealed that he is the Messiah and he revealed his life-changing power. Let's pray. Lord God, we are thankful that you are the way. You are the truth, that you are the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through you. We're thankful that Jesus, our Lord, said that no one can see the kingdom unless the Holy Spirit causes them to be born again. And we're thankful for the sovereignty of the Spirit. We're thankful for the intimacy of the Spirit who dwells in our hearts and causes us to walk with you. We're thankful for the love that you've placed in our hearts for you, for you in your word. And we give you thanks for making us worshipers. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.